During the Cultural Revolution in China, Mao became suddenly associated with the sweet, tangy mango fruit. How did a piece of fruit cause a frenzy in mid-century China? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and today's footnote is about a fruit that took over the Cultural Revolution in China. The history of food is the story of the personal meeting the global. Food can be symbolic of passion, of comfort, of exotic tastes from around the world. Our daily meals are reliant on a seemingly invisible network of weather conditions, technology, labor laws, safety regulations, and the peaceful stability around the world. We often forget what goes into producing a delicate piece of fruit at our breakfast table. During moments of diplomacy, food can stand as a symbol of these networks, producing comfort and exoticism as diplomats exchange produce in terms of friendship. Food is the daily need extrapolated to signify the world. Under Mao's leadership, the mango took on a special place throughout communist China. How is it possible that during a period of tumultuous change, upheaval, and starvation, a fruit would obtain cult status? The story requires some context. Let's begin at the beginning. Mao Zedong, the chairman of Communist China, was born in 1893 and became the leader of China in 1949 with the People's Revolution. His policies and broad sweeping changes marked a different style of communism than that of Stalin's Soviet Russia. Where Stalin focused on industrial workers, Mao focused on agricultural workers. Industry and factories were still important, but the largely agricultural Chinese population meant that the true people's leadership had to come from agricultural workers. This is an extremely simplistic summary, but it helps us to understand why Mao embraced agricultural changes so fully and why a fruit may hold the key to loyalty and the cult of personality. In 1968, a diplomatic visit of Pakistani representatives included a gift of mangoes. The fruit was an expression of goodwill between the countries. Pakistan's own relative youth as a country meant that a close relationship with a nation like China would be particularly beneficial, and food was at a premium in 1968. The year of 1968 saw global upheaval and protests around the world, from San Francisco to Paris and across the many emerging post-colonial communities of Africa. Also, China. China was already undergoing a massive strain through the so-called Cultural Revolution in response to a decade of change and chaos. Ten years earlier, starting in 1958, Mao had implemented broad sweeping changes relating to agriculture in an attempt to modernize China's food production and increase consumption. One of his ideas was to focus on the four great pests across the countryside. These included the mosquitoes, who spread malaria and other fatal illnesses, the rodents, who ate crops and infested homes, the flies, that clustered around manure and made life difficult across the country, and the sparrows who ate the seeds and fruit of hard-working farmers. The idea of eliminating or greatly reducing such pests was informed by bad science. It was more of a gut reaction to the annoyance of flies, the destruction of rats, the irritating stings of mosquitoes. The real standout target of this campaign, though, was the sparrow. The sparrow is a beautiful bird found throughout the world, largely responsible for spreading seeds through its natural behaviors. Under this new program, sparrows would be lumped together with insects and rodents and targeted in very large numbers. 
it soon became the patriotic duty to attack these pests as well as one could, as the larger and friendlier of the pests, the sparrows were the easiest to locate. Maoist propaganda described sparrows as animal agents of capitalism who were working against the communist ideals. Citizens were encouraged to make loud noises to scare the birds away and prevent them from roosting. Nests were broken up, eggs were dashed, hatchlings were killed. Factories and towns held contests to kill the most birds. Some stories claimed that sparrows were so constantly chased off that birds fell from the sky, dead from exhaustion and lack of sleep. Between the program launch in 1958 and its end in 1962, the tree sparrow common to China was nearly driven to extinction. Ultimately, one might see the populace rising to the occasion and fulfilling the task before them as a positive thing. Sparrows died in incredible numbers. However, the task was accomplished without realizing its goal. Sparrows only eat seeds as part of their diets. The rest of their food? Insects! Like mosquitoes and flies, in the aftermath of this devastation of the sparrow population, flies and mosquitoes burst in their numbers. The lack of seed scattering from the, a diminished sparrow population contributed to widespread famine. The final nail in the coffin came with a flood of locusts. Without any sparrows to pick off the feast of locusts, their flooding clouds ran rampant across the countryside, devouring crops and sowing disaster for the farmers. Rice yields plummeted, vegetable patches weakened. What farming success there was fell prey to the growth in insect populations throughout the regions where sparrow destruction had been most successful. In light of this, the Chinese government ended their campaign. Anti-sparrow sentiment survived, though, and the four-pest campaign contributed to major famines and millions of deaths by starvation throughout the 1960s. An estimated 30 million people died as a result of Mao's various agricultural policies, including his campaign against the four pests. Killing sparrows in such large numbers was just one of the many dramatic causes of famine and despair after 1958. The enormous number of dead was sufficient to reduce Chinese patriotism, and in response to his unpopularity, Chairman Mao began to adopt new reforms in 1966 They would soon become known as the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution was a series of policy changes designed to reward extreme loyalty and which encouraged the purge of less dedicated members of the Communist Party. It also helped to spread the cult of personality representing Mao across China. The Cultural Revolution was necessary in order to strengthen Mao's power. It began by addressing widespread factionalism within the party's inner circle through a massive purge. Intellectuals, critical thinkers, and disagreeing members were assassinated, executed, or driven to suicide. The loss of potential challenges in leadership had the effect of reducing internal division at the top. It allowed for a growth in simplistic loyalty. Now, in theory, such simple leadership structure without any pushback might allow China to enter some sort of golden age. By reducing conflict, after all, China was ready for some real change. Unfortunately, their leader was more involved in power than in progress. Mao used most of his authority, time, and energy in destroying any potential enemies than in leading his country to a new age of industry and prosperity. He was particularly happy with encouraging his followers to outdo each other in their performances of loyalty to him. By the end of the Cultural Revolution, two million more Chinese had died and tens of millions had their lives ruined. 
The idealized loyalty was especially popular among student groups, factory workers, and young people. Students of all ages began to form social groups known as the Red Guards. The Red Guards were defenders of Mao Zedong thought. They adopted strong opinions that spilled into violence as they defended their leader's philosophy of society, economy, and authority. From 1966 to 1968, this intensity spilled into university communities. Multiple student groups began to struggle against each other to root out capitalistic values or lackluster dedication to the chairman. Mao encouraged this conflict by calling on all Red Guards to ferret out any evidence of reactionary groups within school campuses. His goal was to isolate the bourgeois elements that may threaten his leadership. Teams of Red Guards fought with each other violently in order to be more successful in finding those who did not truly support Mao's vision for China. The violence soon grew out of hand. Students at Tsinghua University destroyed property. Clashes turned deadly. Things had gotten out of hand. They needed to stop. And at this point, Mao turned to a group of workers to break up the fighting and intense competition. More than 30,000 workers responded to Mao's call for help. They marched on the university. There, workers and students clashed. The conflict intensified. Student groups did not want to give up and were armed with physical objects like knives and spears, as well as access to sulfuric acid. The workers, by contrast, were largely unarmed, yet they were able to overwhelm the students through sheer force of numbers and capable fists. Finally, the student groups stood down and surrendered. It is amazing that this violent conflict was rooted in an argument over who followed Mao more intensely. Five workers died of wounds incurred during the conflict, and another 700 were injured. The end of the battle was clear. Mao would end the Red Guard program, rescind his report for their specific brand of extreme patriotism, and reward the workers for intervening. In the process, Mao lost his fiercely loyal Red Guard groups, but he gained something that could be arguably more precious— the fealty of workers who felt loyalty unmatched since the famines had killed so many millions of Chinese. Mao declared the working class the ideal leaders in everything. After all, the key to communism was in its workers. Both Soviet Russia and communist China had to honor its workers as the backbone of their industrial and agricultural revolutions. And this was the backdrop of conflict that occurred the week before Chairman Mao met with a Pakistani foreign minister for an act of diplomacy in 1968. This was the story of the mango. The gift exchanges are always politically important among diplomatic meetings, but in China they were even more significant. China has a very elaborate ritual of gift exchange. There are expectations to reject the gift in stages before finally accepting it. One's politeness is related directly to the dance of exchanging gifts. The Pakistani foreign minister brought a crate of 40 mangoes as his gift. Traditionally, it was a peach, and not a mango, in China that was the prized fruit. The peach symbolized good health and long life. Yet a mango was not local, and it had a similar texture to a peach. Mao viewed the gift as a foreign fruit and decided to award it to his 30,000 workers who had done so much to quell the violence caused by the fighting among the Red Guards at Tsinghua University. The crate of fruit could hardly be divided among 30,000 people, but it immediately became a symbol. From a Pakistani representative, it was a normal exchange of diplomacy, but from Chairman Mao? It was an incredible honor to be cherished lifelong. The Pakistani gift of mangoes became a tool for encouraging the power of the workers as a symbol of national loyalty and patriotism. 
With it, Mao could enforce the idea that the working class would be leaders in everything, as his saying goes. The workers were thrilled. Reportedly, they stood in line for hours for the opportunity to handle the mango. They felt its texture and smelled the sweetness. They marveled over the chairman's own personal strength in resisting the fruit's sweetness by giving it away to his workers instead of eating it himself. That sacrifice became the symbol of his extreme commitment to benefiting his workers and rejecting the complaints of the intellectuals, the political challengers, and the bourgeoisie. The group of workers so rewarded happened to work across eight factories. Each factory received one prized mango to put on display. However, being a perishable fruit, they had to act fast or risk losing their message of honor and congratulations from the chairman. One factory dipped the fruit in wax to preserve it. Another injected it with formaldehyde. All workers would pass by the preserved fruit on their way to work and again on their way out. Another factory boiled the fruit in water and allowed each factory worker a small sip of the broth before the fruit had a chance to decompose entirely. No amount of love and appreciation from the workers could prevent the crate of mangoes from decomposing, but after the mangoes were gone, Mao became honored by replications. Made of wax, stone, glass, or metals, these imitation mangoes allowed the workers, and even those unrelated to the original cause of thank you, to be able to put mangoes and Mao into a central position in their homes. Flags, coins, portraits of Mao are often decorated with small piles of mangoes. Traveling caravans of false mangoes toured the countryside to give even rural Chinese people the opportunity to see this new symbol of their leader. And since so many Chinese people had never seen a mango, let alone taste it, the mango became as mysteriously valuable as Mao himself. Stories survive of people underawed by the wax version of the fruit. Those who mistakenly shared their disappointment risked being pummeled by the crowds or even arrested and tried for counter-revolutionary thoughts. Such disdain could even lead to execution. Eventually, the Cultural Revolution died down, and Mao's cult of personality dwindled slightly, although he still enjoys a good reputation today among Chinese leaders and businessmen. But reminders of the period when the mango reigned supreme across China can still be found in flags, posters, and pictures from the era. The sweetness of the fruit represented the sweetness of Mao's leadership, the toughness of the skin represented the toughness of Chinese communism, and the peach-like flesh reminded Chinese of the possibility of long life and good health, which they wished upon Mao and upon communist China itself. It is surprising that such a period of heavy death and destruction from the four pests might be followed by a period of intense performative loyalty. Perhaps when people lose so much, they cling to something new, more holy than ever before. Perhaps when seeing so much death and loss and destruction, one gives themselves to the status quo more fully in order to seek self-protection. Whatever the cause, whatever the reason, the agricultural reforms and the four pests campaign somehow led to the iconic worship of a mango in Maoist China. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>